Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And, went, and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out from about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his servant, or steward rather, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired, about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men who worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I, I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the, the last will be first and the first last, for many are called but few chosen. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with their sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. You are able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. 
Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Let's pray together. Father, we have our hearts open to you. Lord, speak to us anything that you want to say. We are ready to hear, but not just hear, but to obey by your grace and by your power. We want to be fashioned, Lord, according to the image of Christ. We know that you want it more than we want it. And so we yield our hearts to you, Lord. Speak to your servants now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> As we have seen, the Lord Jesus is in his final year of his life. In terms of ministry, he's in the year of opposition, organized opposition against him. We've looked at that. And then about six months before the events we'll be looking at today, he started heading towards Jerusalem. And Luke tells us that he steadfastly faced towards Jerusalem and he knew that the cross was coming. And so besides him healing and saving people as he's looking at the cross, as the cross is in the forefront of his, his uh, eyes in, a, in, in the sense of where he's going, he is also preparing the disciples for his departure. He's trying to help them understand that he's going away. He's very gracious that way. They, they're not really getting it. Even after he rose from the dead, he appeared to them intermittently, I believe, to wean them off of himself, so preparing them further for the fact when he is going to be, ascend to heaven and then they wouldn't see him any longer. And so now he's in the middle of this scene here and he's almost at Jerusalem. We're about a week away from the cross in terms of the, the chronology of everything. So he's almost there. And so today we, we're introduced to this, this man that's referred to as the rich young ruler. <clears throat> and we're also going to see the parable of the vineyard workers. We're going to see uh, Mama Zebedee try to secure a great position for her two sons, just like any mom would, you know, trying to get that place for her sons. Uh, he's going to speak of servant leadership, and finally he's going to heal two blind men as he leaves Jericho and on his way to that final place of Jerusalem. So we begin in verse 16 by this, Now behold, one came to him and said, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So this is a well-known man. He's young. He's wealthy. He's a ruler. He has responsibility. He's also, as we'll see, moral. So he's, the, he's like the perfect catch. For the, for the ladies, you know, he's the perfect guy. He has everything together. You know, he's not just, you know, like on those dating sites, you know, people put all this stuff on there, you know, and they, they make themselves look like they're just like the, the best thing that people could possibly imagine related to, uh, you know, a, a companion. But really, you know, it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz. You know, you, you get there and it's like all of a sudden you pull the curtain back and, oh man, this is, you exaggerated a little bit. Well, this young man wouldn't have to do that. He had it all together. He was wealthy. He was young. He was had responsibility. He was moral. He was kind of like a celebrity. And so he comes to the Lord Jesus with this question. Now he's moral, but he doesn't know how much morality is required for eternal life and so how you answer this same question in your own heart and when you're communicating the gospel to people reveals a lot of what you understand about God and his plan for salvation if you think that you can earn it then you don't have it and so what we look at as we look at as we get to know people, and as we study how to reach them and so forth, they have all these different opinions about what constitutes uh, the standard for salvation. So the world thinks I can do enough good things that will outweigh my bad 
you know, sin and so forth, and somehow God will grade on a curve, and, and I'll be okay, and I'll just barely squeak by, and all these things they come up with in their minds that is completely not in the scriptures, but it wasn't just prevalent, it isn't just prevalent today, it was prevalent in their day. The Jews erroneously believed that the law could be the means by which somebody could secure eternal life. If I just obey those 613 commandments, then I will make it. And God never said that. He never said that about the law. The purpose of the Mosaic law was to reveal that we're sinners, that we can't meet the standard, and thus we need a Savior to, to save us. Now, Jesus has asked this question more than once in the Gospels. He answers it differently each time. And I believe the reason why he does that is because his motive, the motive and the condition of each person asking is different. So he's getting at their true need in a way where it makes the most sense to them and reveals to them in their own eyes uh, what's getting in the way of saving faith in him. Now notice Jesus answers him in verse 17. So he said to them, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So he starts, starts off with saying, why do you call me good? There's only one that's good, and that's God. And some people make the mistake of thinking, especially the cults, think that he's denying that he's God in human flesh, that he's denying his deity. He's not doing that at all. What he's saying is, you're prepared to call me good, you need to be prepared to call me God. Because there's only one that's good, and that's God. So they go together. He began his question with, good teacher. And we know that Jesus is more than merely a good teacher. He's God in human flesh. So you can't pick and choose. You have to have the whole thing or you don't understand anything about him but then he says but if you want to enter into life keep the commandments now on this on the surface this could be confusing for us we talk about being saved by grace you know ephesians 2 8 and 9 for by grace you've been saved through faith is not of yourselves it is the gift of god not of works lest any man should boast we know that titus says that it's not by any righteous works that we have done but by his mercy he has saved us over and over again the gospel is communicated to us that salvation is a gift so why is the lord jesus saying obey the the commandments and i and i believe again jesus is doing something deeper here what he's doing with this rich young ruler is he's exposing something he's exposing this man's idolatry this man's idolatry was wealth verse 18 he said to him this is the rich young ruler which ones and jesus said you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness on your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? First of all, he didn't keep these things perfectly since his youth. Because again, perfectly is the, is the key word in that sentence. We have to keep it perfectly Jesus wasn't going to argue with him about the fact that he was keeping it perfectly or not because he was in the process of revealing something, namely his idolatry, that was going to be at the heart of everything. And so that's kind of what's missing with a works-based approach to salvation. You just never know how good is good enough. And the reason why you won't find it in Scripture is he never intended for us to be saved through works. So, of course, he's not going to put a standard there and saying, okay, if you obey these things this much or these commandments versus these or whatever it is, then you'll be saved. He doesn't do that. So this man is baffled. He doesn't know. He knows that something's missing. He, he's moral, but yet he knows that he's not moral enough or he wouldn't have come to the Lord Jesus in the first place. He knows that he's not. There's something that... He, he lacks, and the world knows this. They, the world knows they're missing something, and that's why they keep searching and searching and searching for fulfillment. Maybe you're here today, and you've been searching and searching and searching to find something that is fulfilling, that basically fills that God-sized void that's inside of you, and you've been putting microscopic little things in there, the same thing that the rich young ruler did, money and relationships, whatever, and God wants to come in and Fill that God-sized void with him. And until that happens, you will not be fulfilled. You will continue to be empty. And God wants to change that in your life. Now look with me at Jesus' response in verse 21. Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, 
for he had great possessions. The idol has been exposed. He had great possessions. And I think it's more accurate to say that the possessions had him. They had control over him. And this man was willing to forfeit, forfeit eternal life in order to keep his possessions, and Jesus knew it. So that's why the approach. That's why he, he brought all these things up and exposed this man the way that he did. <clears throat> Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man exchange for his soul? He also said a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You remember that bumper sticker, whoever dies with the most toys wins? They don't, really don't have that bumper sticker so much anymore. But people still think that if I accumulate things and so forth, it'll bring me happiness. It'll bring me contentment. And it doesn't. Without Christ, they lose. And those things can actually be the anchor that drags us down to the eternal lake of fire. And we actually forfeit salvation and purpose in life and our calling that he has in our lives and wants to use us in our in through he wants to use us to bring people to come to know him. But we are holding on to that thing that compared to eternity is so minuscule and in and, and inferior. So we can ask the Lord to reveal to us when we're sharing our faith, when we're preaching the gospel, we can ask him to reveal to us what is the idol. Have you ever done that? God can reveal it. What is, what is the roadblock? They're weighing something. Think of those scales. And on one side is eternal life that we're offering as a free gift, something they don't have to earn. On the other side is what, what they're going to have to give up. And we need to figure out what's on this one. We need to figure out if we can, if he can reveal it, or if they can share it. Because a lot of times they will forfeit that or they will give that information to us. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So as we ask questions, as we present the gospel, and they, they express reservation, we're trying to figure out what's on this scale over here. What is holding them back? And, and I just want to encourage you, Yet many times the Lord will show you what's on the other side of that scale. He'll show us, and then you can highlight to them how incredibly uh, irrational it is to, to hold on to this thing that's so much lighter and, and not worth as much as eternal life. It's really insanity to think that we're going to hold on to anything that would be worth anything in exchange for eternal life. And, and so this was made clear to this this man. So he walked away sorrowful. He didn't follow Christ. He didn't say, oh, that's the greatest deal of all time. I will, of course, do that. It means nothing to me. These things are, they haven't brought me fulfillment up to this point anyway. So I'm just going to give these things up and, and, and follow you. And, and, and people do that today. They have that reaction. They have the, the, the right reaction. We always think that people are going to have this kind of reaction. They're going to walk away sorrowful, but they, they don't. Many of them don't. Many, many of them realize the emptiness of, of living a life apart from Christ. And when it's perfect timing for you to come with that gospel and you preach that gospel to them and they realize that this is the answer and they're willing to turn and forsake everything to be able to gain eternal life. That should be an encouragement for us to continue to be faithful with the gospel. Then Jesus said to his disciples, verse 23, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's been all kinds of crazy interpretations of verse 24. How many of us have heard of the eye of the needle gate? Yeah, we have hands going around. There's, there's this gate. There was this gate there, and it's centuries old, this teaching, by the way. There's this gate that it's really low, and if you're on a camel, you couldn't make it through the gate if you had a bunch of, you know, it was loaded up with things. And so you had to take those things off the camel for it to be able to gonna lower itself and get through the gate and all this stuff. It's, there's no record of that gate ever existing. It's really talking about a real camel with a real needle not being able to make it through uh, the needle and and it's communicate it's impossible it's absolutely impossible why is that because people with wealth 
they love their wealth and they, they don't understand God's heart that God loves them more than they could possibly imagine. And he's not going to ask them to do anything that's not going to be for their best. And that material things don't bring fulfillment. You know, some of the people that don't know Christ that have a lot of things, when you tell them, and I've told them this before, you know, material wealth doesn't bring happiness. And they say, well, that's just because you haven't been materially wealthy before. And I say, you're right, I haven't. You know, I'm not on Christian television. I don't, I'm not ripping people off and I don't have the hair for it, first of all. You know, but, uh, you know, there's, it, that's just a smoke screen. They know when they're quiet, you know, when they're in their houses and they're, when they're thinking about things and contemplating things that there's emptiness there. They know that. And that's why we see people that have those things. They go to all these things to try to medicate their pain and so forth. And God just wants to free them from that. Now, look at the disciples say, verse 25. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? See, the question comes from a popular belief that was existed then and still exists to many, uh, in many ways now. That basically your, your material wealth is a reflection of your spiritual health. And if you're doing well uh, materially, then you have to be doing well spiritually. And so that's why they're asking this question. Well, if this man, if wealthy people can't make it, and it's impossible for them to make it. Who can be saved? Where does that leave the rest of us? Because we're way less wealthy than, than they are. And, and, and he says, But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It's, it's impossible for any of us to be saved. It's a miracle. It's so funny people say, I don't believe in miracles. And there's Christians all around them that are miracles. We know that God has changed our lives. He's made us from who we used to be into who we are and so forth. And when we're thinking about sharing with wealthy people, there is a mirage that they do have it all together and they don't have any problems and all of that. Again, that's a mirage. It's They do have an incredible need for Christ and they just need someone to tell them the truth. But Jesus looked at them and said to them, Oh, I already read that. Verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Notice the word all there in the middle of verse 27. We have left all. They had left all. Remember when they called them? They left their fishing boats. They left their business. They just left. The Matthew who wrote this gospel was a tax collector. He just left. I mean, it was a big deal to leave your responsibility. You were uh, co contracted with, with Rome, and you were leaving all of that and so forth. And he says, you know, where does that leave us? Because he's thinking of the rich young ruler. You just asked this man to leave everything, but we've left everything. So what do we, what do we have? What are we going to get? And then Jesus answers. He says, Surely I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> I mean, the, the heritage of, of that, to think about for, from them hearing this for the first time, the 12 tribes of Israel, we're going to be judging them, we're going to over, have oversight. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Verse 29 reveals the cost of following Jesus. It can cost us all of those things. It can cost us houses. It can cost us brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or your land. You know, like This is a lot of times in a big encouragement to missionaries that have left their the comfort of their country and left to a foreign land to go preach the gospel. And what God is saying, he's saying, you haven't sacrificed anything. And I'm going to reward you. I'm going to bless you. You can't outgive God. He's a giving God. And, and nobody is going to, he's not going to be anyone's debtor. So we have to recognize, first of all, that true discipleship may cost us everything in this life. Jesus said at one point, unless you forsake all, you cannot be my disciple. That's a hard saying for us, especially in our culture. 
we're so self-focused and we're so focused on what we have and who has what compared to us and so forth. It's in all of us. So he's saying we have to surrender everything. We may lose relationships. We may lose our closest relationships. Being faithful to God and the calling on our lives and obeying, preaching that gospel, which is something to obey or it's something that is incumbent upon all of us to obey, that great commission, it may cost us our deepest, closest relationships. God knows it. He's not hiding it from us. He's not saying, well, it's going to be great, and then does a bait and switch on us, and all of a sudden we're, we're, we're surprised. He's honest with us. We may lose everything, but if we sacrifice those things, he is going to bless us beyond what we can possibly imagine. So often when people come to know Christ and they take a stand for God and they say, oh, this, is, this is the way I'm living now. And the family doesn't understand and they're mad at them. They'd rather, it's so crazy, sometimes they'd rather have them be drug addicted and you know all these things than to, to be a, a sold out believer. And they, and they basically turn their backs on them or they just are cold towards them. They don't want to have really a close relationship anymore and the and the believer is devastated but what they realize what they learn and what what it's compensates greatly for all of that in many ways is the church the family that they receive their new family that that love them unconditionally that it's not based on what their stance is or where what they're believing or not believing that they're locked on to our lives and are, have a commitment to us no matter what we go through they're there and so that's that's important for us to, to remember because we need to be that family member to somebody that's lost their family. We need to be there for them when they have need because we are their, their new family members. We're going to be with each other for all eternity. So we better get used to one another. Now, we're going to have a new body. We're going to have a new body. We're not going to have a sinful nature. So some of the things that drive you crazy and some of the things that drive other people crazy about you are not going to be there. So that's great. That's an encouragement to us. But we're going to be, I mean, after the thousand-year millennium, the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to be in the new Jerusalem, and we're going to be seeing one another there. And we're going to look back and just think about, wow, that was millennia ago that we were there when it was raining on Louise Avenue in that church and, and being there for each other and eating cookies and going to agape feasts and all that can you believe all that happened thousands of years ago and you know thank you for your faithfulness in my life and what you meant to me it's just going to be a beautiful thing we have a brand new family we haven't lost anything nobody in heaven's going to regret what they gave up to follow christ you're not going to be in heaven going man i wish i wouldn't have sort of forsaken all and given up all of that and put god first in my life nobody is going to be saying that in heaven no one's saying that now in heaven that have already gone to be with christ okay let's move on to chapter 20 it's connected because it's talking about receiving god's blessing and about answering god's call he says for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day. Now, we went over this a few weeks ago, that a denarius is about the size of a dime. It's a Roman coin, and it was the, um, it was the same as uh, one day's wage. Okay, So the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. This is around harvest time, of course. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right... Notice he doesn't say denarius. He just says, whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So up to this point, everything is normal. This is like um, going in front of Home Depot early in the morning and seeing the guys waiting there for work, something I greatly respect. They're waiting there to, to do an honest day's work. They're there available to work. That's something that we should respect. But it's very typical that we see that. In this day, they were the same type of thing. There were men that were out there waiting to work. They were, they were wanting to provide for their families but no one had hired them. And so the work day, it begins early in the morning because he says in, in, in verse one there, early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. 
And so the beginning of the day was 6 a.m. That was the first hour. Their days began at 6 a.m. and ended at 6 p.m. That will help us so we understand this. So then he goes to the third hour, verse 2, which is 9 a.m. And the verse 5, the sixth hour, which is noon. And he goes out again in the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. And then in verse 6, the eleventh hour. Now, this our culture takes these phrases for that we have in the scriptures, and we use them in our vernacular. And, and we always talk about at the eleventh hour. Where do we get that from? Here, the eleventh hour, uh, he hires even more. And that's five o'clock. You have an hour left of work, and you're hiring somebody because you're as a landowner, you just need these things harvested. You need these grapes harvested. So nothing's abnorm- abnormal up to this point. Everything is typical. Nothing is different than any other day verse 8 so when evening had come the owner of the vineyard said to his servant call the laborers and give them their wages beginning with the last and to the first now he brought up this the first shall be last and the last shall be first as he's getting at and when those came who were hired about the 11th hour they each received a denarius so one day's wage for working one hour it's pretty good i like that but when the first came they supposed that they received more And they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These men, these last men, have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us, who have borne the burden in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? So in other words, he was content with the denarius in the beginning. So just because someone else receives something of the same value for less work, why is that bothering him? He said, verse 14, Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give, you, give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Now notice the word good here, because he's, he's revealing something about the Father's heart in this parable. Because I do good. So the last will be first and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen but few chosen so i want you to put yourself in the in the person's shoes who started at 6 a.m did you get ripped off was he unfair to you by giving you what he promised he was true to his word he said i'm going to pay you this much and he paid him that much but they complained and they and and it was a it was a complaint that i think probably all of us would at least think about people do talk you know you you know that within companies People talk about what they make, what the other person makes. They, you know, the, the management always thinks that nobody ever says anything to anyone about those things, but they know who makes what and all of that and, and everything, and they're, they're oblivious many times. And, and, and so this is the understanding here. This is about stewardship for us, because remember, this whole thing started with Peter saying, what do we get? We've forsaken all. So it's like Peter is talking, he's one of the six AMers. We we have been from you from the beginning, and we forsook all. And so here God is saving people, people are coming into the kingdom and so forth, and he's gracious with them and he's good to them that come later in life. Sometimes people get upset with dead deathbed conversions. How dare God save a person on their deathbed? They didn't do anything to basically atone for their sins. And well, someone did pay a price for that. That was Christ. And, and sometimes when people get saved at the end of their lives or towards the end of their lives, they look back and they go, man, I wish I was saved when I was younger because I've wasted all those years. I could have been serving the Lord. I could have been being used by him. And I just frittered those away. Is that a word still? Frittered? I don't know. But I just wasted those years and... Uh, Man, I only have just a few years left, and, 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 and you know, what are my rewards going to be? And we have to recognize that God is good. He's compassionate. He just wants to bless. He wants an excuse to bless. Sometimes he blesses, he doesn't even have an excuse. He just wants to do it because he's a loving father. And so the, the, the message for us related to stewardship is that he is gracious with his rewards. I can't believe we're going to get rewards for anything that we do. He's the one that saves us. He's the one that creates the opportunities. He's the one that provides his word to bring us into maturity. He provides the church to help us grow into maturity as well. He gives us people to share with. He sets up divine appointments. He gives his Holy Spirit in the situation to convict them of sin and show them what their need is and so forth. And then we just open up our mouth and say something and then 
He's given us our vocal cords. He's given us our will to choose. And then they get saved. And then we bring them into his church. And he ministers to them. He produces growth. He puts all that to our account. And then at the end of our lives, he rewards us for it. Think about how amazing that is. How gracious that is. God is a God of grace. He's not trying to withhold as much as he can withhold well you know they they did this and so i have to give them the minimum and he's trying to say i want to give you more than what you uh have worked for i want to bless your life i want to entrust you with true riches i want to give you spiritual influence that's true riches we don't want justice do we you don't want to get to heaven and want justice related to your rewards because if we ask for justice, we wouldn't be in heaven in the first place. We want mercy. That's what we want. And we should be happy for anybody who gets blessed with, with uh, blessings in this life and, and even beyond. We should be happy for them. So just the main point here, God is gracious. We need to be okay with that. And our stewardship, we're never going to look back and go, man, he, I just got ripped off. I didn't get, I didn't get what, what was due me or I didn't get what was, was a blessing because that's not the case. Verse 17, now Jesus going up to Jerusalem, which is about 2,600 feet above sea level, so they always say up to Jerusalem, it's, on a, it's pretty high up, um, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify and the third day he will rise again. It's the third time he's warned them, trying to prepare them for his departure. So he's trying to get through to them. I'm going away. He doesn't want them to be blindsided by this. He wants them to know I'm going away and these things are going to happen. It's not as if things are out of control. They're very much in control. The, the, the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. God always knew that man would fall and he supplied a savior and he prophesied this at the, in the Garden of Eden. He prophesied this. The very first messianic prophecy has to do with the, the, the seed um, crushing Satan's head and so forth. And so he prophesied all of, all of that. He's trying to warn them. Verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with their sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. These verses are special to me in many ways. I had to do projects on these verses in school. Um, I had to do like 50 observations from these verses. And, and it's just stared at these things for hours. Um, but I just you got to give it to Mama Zebedee here. Because she's just wanting something for her kids. Wanting, I mean, they're this close to the, you know, being secured in heaven in some position. He's getting ready to go, to go away. And it's, they're still thinking of a, of a kingdom that's going to be on this earth and so forth. And all of that, a political Messiah. They're, they're going to ask him that on the, the day that he ascends. Is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, they're still thinking earthly and so forth. But she is trying so hard to secure this place for them. And um, you know, he just told them, you're going to sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Isn't that enough? Nope. I want to sit on your right hand and on your left. I want to be right there. And the mom is, is just in there. And they kneel down and ask before him. It's interesting. But Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. Let's talk about presumptuous, man. Woo. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. Now they would, this is talking about suffering here, the cup of his suffering and, and the baptism, you know, that means to be immersed and, and, and to suffer the way that he's going to suffer. And they said, we are able, just like, when you know really what that means, 
but we're able because we're talking about it and hey, it can't hurt for me to say so maybe you might just give it to me if I just say yes, we're able and and they hear something that they wouldn't have heard otherwise. Yes, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Herod put James to death by the sword in, in, in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. It was the first of the 12 to be martyred. The apostle John was boiled in oil, tradition says, didn't die, and then he was banished to the Isle of Patmos there and died of old age. So he received suffering as well. These things were true. This is nothing, we're not immune from anything as disciples. Some of us may actually give our lives for Christ in the future. As things continue to get worse and worse and worse, there, the persecution may come to the extent that we have to lay down our lives uh, for him, and it's, it would be an honor to do that. Verse 24, And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. <laughs> They're like, are you kidding me? Did I just see this? Yeah, you're mad because you didn't think of it first, probably. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, it's just like, come on, you know what? <laughs> you're not displeased because of something related to them. It's like, yeah, you know, what about me? They're just fighting. Who's going to be the greatest still? They're still fighting. Who's going to be the great, greatest? And they're like, come on, you brought your mom into this? You, come on, you, got, you can't even handle this yourself? You got to bring your mom to, 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 to petition for you? I mean, you can imagine the conversations like, give me a break. How old are you now? And you're bringing your mommy in with you? Did you bring your blanket and your pacifier too? I mean, come on. Man, I would, I mean, I would be one of those people that would just be, brought your mom? Really? But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So he provides this great contrast, the kingdom of God and, the, and how we function in the kingdom of God with how those function that, are in, that have oversight in the world, the Gentiles, those that are non-Jews, those, are, those that are, that are you know, in the world and they rule and the, the monarchies and all those things, anyone in authority, they, they, they rule over with a strong hand and, and making demands and usually not wanting to lift a finger. But Jesus says, no, the greatest in the kingdom are those that are servants, that lead by example, that actually put others first, just like Jesus. There's no way you're going to be have influence in this world and have authority in this world, I mean, I mean, in the kingdom, if you're not going to be like Jesus. I mean, why would, a servant is not greater than his master. Why would you even think that, that there's a way to, to oversee his people or to have influence or oversight in any way if you're authority hungry and you're wanting to be served. And so many of you have shared your stories with me being in other environments where the leadership ha gave out the kind of the, the vibe or the, they even said it <laughs> explicitly that basically we're, we're here to be served. And they're the furthest away from the heart of God that you can possibly be. Because Jesus is a servant. He's still a servant today. He hasn't changed. He's still a servant. He'd still wash our feet to help us to see what it looks like to, to, to truly lead. We don't exercise authority over people. We serve people. We lead by example. And if we were holding the whole thing together ourselves we'd have to do that but since the holy spirit holds everything together and he motivates and he's the one that leads us and gives us the heart to do things and so forth then then we don't have to do that and so he's saying this is a this is a big distinction here you're thinking about who's going to be first and who's going to serve you when you need to be thinking about who you're going to serve and whose life you're going to make better and so forth when everybody is serving and everybody is preferring the other person it's a beautiful picture. That's what heaven's going to be like. Think about it. People are going to be serving each other. They're going to be helping each other. You're not going to have problems with trying to find help for anything that you need of. There's going to be people that are there that are, that are going to be, it's their joy to help, your, help whatever you need be fulfilled. And so this is the contrast. He's saying, 
the rulers of the Gentiles, they're like this, but it's not going to be like this among you. And that's why it's so weird for people to come into to churches and see these people be like CEOs because they know that that's not like Jesus. When they read Jesus about Jesus in the Gospels, they see this is not how Jesus is. So why are these people being opposite of how Jesus is? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. All of us have authority in some way in our lives. Authority over our children, authority over spiritual things, authority over um, who we preach the gospel to. All of us have a, a, a way to be able to show that we're servants and to, to meet needs. And we, it, it makes us ask ourselves, why are we doing what we're doing? Are we doing something because of a position or a title? Or, or are we doing something because we love people? And we're doing things because we want God's people to be blessed. When we put God's people first, that's when they're blessed. And that's when God is blessed as well. Verse 29. Now, as they went out to Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Now, this is the last stop before Jerusalem. Even when today, when you go by Jericho in the bus, you're in the tour bus and you're starting to go up from Jericho. It's a, it's a slow, windy drive until you get up on the top there um, to Jerusalem. So they're starting their ascent there. And verse 30, Behold, two men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So, you know, the disciples had this heart, too. We saw this many times. You know, Jesus was moved with compassion. The disciples said, Send them away. It's like this pattern. Move with compassion, send them away. Move with compassion, send them away. And here we have these, these blind men, and they're crying out. No one has, everyone has a heart like a rock that's down there by next to them. You know, just don't care at all. They know Jesus could heal them. We're not concerned about them at all. Hey, be quiet. Shh, hush. You know, we can see that you can, you know, uh, raise your voices. We don't want you to raise your voices. And they're like, that's the point. You can see. We can't. We want the Messiah to heal us. And so they keep crying, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. So Jesus stood still. You can make a whole sermon from that. Based on Jesus' heart towards people that need mercy, Jesus stood still. It gets his attention. He, and these are people that, he's talking about physical needs here, but what about spiritual needs? And our needs as sons and daughters of his, as co-heirs with Christ, we're there. We, we need mercy, and we, he extends that mercy a lot to us. But he is always wanting to hear when we cry out to him, have mercy on me, God. And, and he always has our, we always have his attention. And then he says, what do you want me to do for you? He knew what they needed, but he wants them to say it. They want, he wants them to express that to them. We want to be able to see because in part, when they're doing that, they're expressing their faith in him. To even say the words we want to be able to see presupposes that God can answer that prayer and he can heal them or else you wouldn't even utter those words. He wants them to express that uh, to them. And so he, he's going to model what a servant looks like. He just got done speaking about it and now he's going to serve. He's going to stop and that's a good lesson for us. So often God gives us ministry opportunities at the, at the, in our estimation, the worst possible time. We're busy, we're doing a million things, and all of a sudden there's a ministry opportunity, and it's just like Jesus, you know, going to Jerusalem here. Remember, he's facing the cross. He's going to have mankind betray him. He knows that, and he's still extending this loving heart. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and these men need mercy, and he stops, and he's, he allows them and his schedule to be interrupted by what they need. And that's exactly what he wants to do through our lives as well. And so often when we're in the greatest trials of our lives or we're going through difficult times, we need to watch for the ministry opportunities because they just materialize before us. And we think, God would never do that. I'm the weakest I've ever been. Yes, you're the most dependent you've ever been. That's why the power can go through your life when you're the weak. You know, so often it's, I'm exhausted. And, and the leaders, I'm talking about up here. <laughs> you're like, I know, you're pretty tired. Um, but I'm tired to ask for prayer before the service. You know, please, I need physical strength. And they get excited when I say that many times because they know that I'm, when I'm weak, I'm going to be more dependent upon God and God will, you know, use me more or whatever. But that's the same way with our lives. 
When we're weak, we're more dependent upon him and, and we become more usable. We become a vessel through whom he can do amazing things because we're dependent upon him. Don't miss the ministry opportunities when you're going through a trial. Maybe you're in a trial right now and you need encouragement just in general, but also you need encouragement related to ministry. Don't think that God can't use you in a time of weakness. Look at the Apostle Paul. He's greatly, greatly weakened physically by this thorn in the flesh, and he prayed three different times for it to be removed. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And he didn't just say, you know what, okay, you know, forget it. I'm not even going to minister. He just kept going, and, and the power of, of God and the power of his resurrection was made manifest through his life. So he models what, what it looks like to be a servant. And so he says in verse 33, they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. The rich young ruler went away sorrowful. These two blind men followed Christ. They were wealthy, way more compared to this rich young ruler because they found the Messiah. They found the the one that was going to revolutionize their lives for eternity and they followed him. So the rich young ruler went away sorrowful. Don't forget that in the middle of sharing with somebody, God can reveal what their idol is, and you can speak to that. Don't forget that the kingdom of God is a stewardship, and God is going to be gracious to whom he's going to be gracious. He's going to be a good God. He's going to, he's going to give you whatever reward that he sees fit, and it's always going to be greater than what we deserve. And lastly, let's not forget that in the middle of trials, God comes in and gives us ministry opportunities and he wants us to be willing to be interrupted so that he can do an amazing thing. And he works it all out together for good. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these verses. As we begin to prepare our hearts to worship and respond, we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would just speak to us and and reveal things. And I pray, Father, for everything that you have revealed already to your people. Lord, help us to process these things. Help us, Lord, to to rightly give these things over to you and, and, and be able to confess any sin, to make any changes that we need to make, Lord. Help us to just be right with you in every way. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who speaks to us. So as we worship now, Father, I pray that you would just bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen.